so I'm going to take some time and uh, tonight to just give a general concept of what I see in a kind of three streams uh, way of envisioning uh, Christianity. And I'm going to leave room for questions, but anywhere along the journey tonight, if I use a term, uh, you don't know what I mean by it, or you're not following me and you, you have a question, uh, please don't hesitate to ask. <clears throat> there are no dumb questions, uh, and, uh, and there's no, no offensive questions, because, uh, you know, if particularly... Uh, you know, if people are coming to us from another part of Christian church uh, and they don't understand the terms we use, we may have been using them our whole life uh, and we don't know why they would ask that anyone should know this term. Uh, we, we all have that, you know. Uh, so the different tribes of Christianity, you meet a Presbyterian and you use terms you don't use or they use them in a different way than you're used to or so forth. Um, it ought to be always okay to stop and say, wait, what do you mean by that? And then explain that to me. Uh, so let me go ahead and put up the chart. And, um, and I'll, I'll tell you what happened to me um, is th uh, that I had been serving in, in Quebec for many years in, in Montreal. And I had visited all kinds of different churches because I was raised in a little Pentecostal denomination that believed itself to be the restored New Testament church, which meant no other church was restored New Testament church. All the rest were kind of faking it or something. Uh, and so it, it was very sectarian. And when I got out of that, I began to visit all kinds of churches I could because I, I didn't think anymore that we were the restored New Testament church, but I was going to find it. And I, so I, I went, you know, Lutherans and Methodists. And I went to a Coptic church, which was Egyptian, uh, Catholic churches, of course, that have been around for many years. Orthodox churches, they threw me for a loop because they, uh, you know, I, I thought they didn't know their Bible, uh, and I didn't know they were reading the Bible in the language it was written every day. Uh, it was humbling. Uh, so after uh, two or three years of this, I, I came to Nashville. I, had, I was um, uh, Invited to either straighten up or leave the denomination of my birth, and so I uh, found myself without employment. Uh, and I ended up in Nashville, Tennessee, at Christ Church. And it was here that I began to try to put into con uh, into some kind of con construct uh, all the churches I'd gone to and how to make sense of them. And one day at my table, uh, I I just divided. I made three. Columns to put all the different churches I had visited, and I don't know what now. I've, it's lost to me uh, why I came up with these three categories. But it seemed to me that <clears throat> uh, all churches could be uh, described as either being liturgical, evangelical, or charismatic. Um, and. And I said, like, okay, the Catholics obviously are liturgical. Orthodox are liturgical. Baptists, they're evangelicals. Um, Nazarenes are evangelicals. Um, Pentecostals are Pentecostals. Uh, Charismatics are Pentecostals that don't want to call themselves Pentecostals. So there's the kind of the category, but they're, they're, they're still kind of alike. They just kind of came into the world at different times. 
Then there's like the Lutherans, where do we put them? They're kind of sacramental. They're kind of liturgical and kind of evangelical, depending on the Lutherans. And the Methodist, kind of that way too. And, and, and then after the charismatic movement came along, then some churches are kind of, some Baptists are, Baptists are kind of Baptisty, Pentecostally Baptisty something. And so the, the lines get, get a little blurred. But in general, you can probably place a church you grew up in in one of these categories, liturgical, evangelical, or charismatic. Anybody grew up in a church, you couldn't put them in there? I mean, if it wasn't Mormon or something, right? Okay. So, so I asked myself, in, in our, what I grew up thinking is people all used to be like us because we're the restored New Testament church. They used to be like us, and then they backslid, and then they started, first they lost the spirit and became Baptist. Then they went even worse, and they even lost that, and they, and they started mumbling stuff nobody could understand, and everybody had to read off the same book because they couldn't even make up their own prayers. Uh, so, that, so it was a kind of like you, you start over here, and then you just kind of like keep wandering away, and finally you're, you're, you're almost next to hell by the time you get you know, to the end of this chart. Uh, so, uh, so it's kind of that way. And all the liturgical sacramental practices, that's just paganism. It's pure, pure paganism. Uh, and that's the way I grew up. Um, and especially growing up in Latin America, part of my life, uh, being run out of town by uh, overzealous Catholics, you know, uh, then it's, it's you, you kind of demonize the whole thing. So as I began in my, my study uh, of church history, I realized my argument didn't hold up because Christians had been liturgical from the beginning, from the very beginning, and they had been evangelical from the very beginning. But why did, had they separated, and why, why did we, today we have pretty distinct lines between these folks, and what's the biblical roots? I had to figure that out. So I realized liturgical worship is based in temple worship, temple and this, and this, and the tabernacle. So, you know, God tells Moses in the book of Leviticus, see that you make it according to the pattern. It's a specific pattern. The, the priests are to wear the following things. They're to do the following things. They're to walk this far and no further. They're to, on this certain day, they're to do a certain thing, and the fat is to be put in the golden goblet, and the golden goblet's to be in the ashes thereof, and yea, there shall the heifer thereof, and the entrails thereof, and, and thereof you shall take, and surely it shall be unto thee that, you know. And, and if, if you can follow the book of Leviticus, and not very many people can, uh, you know, for a while, you know, it's not the greatest reading material for anybody until you really begin to get under the hood of it. Um, but, but you see that it's very prescribed. Now, the question then about whether we should have liturgical worship or not is not whether it's uh, biblical or not, but how much of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant prescriptions of worship ought to flow into the new? Or did God just say, I'm tired of this religion. I'm going to start a new religion. Uh, and, you know, just wipe it all away. I'm going to start over again. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I made a mistake with the whole thing. I'm just starting over. And from now on, no more of that. But, and, and you, you could kind of say that. And some people come close to saying that. But then there's the book of Revelation where all this stuff comes back. And they're doing it up in heaven, you know. 
even though it's forbidden, to, it's, we, we don't do it anymore after Jesus on the earth, but then when you get to heaven, you do it again. I mean, some, something's, you know, I couldn't figure that out. But anyway, but, but what, about, what about the evangelicals? Well, evangelical worship is synagogue worship. If you go to a synagogue, it's basically a Baptist church with some Hebrew sprinkled in. Uh, and they don't mention Jesus, which can happen at a Baptist church too if it's, you know, the wrong kind of Baptist church. But uh, so, so synagogue worship is, it has a little ritual in it, but not much. There's prescribed things they do, but it's, it's very light. I was at synagogue a couple of weeks ago. And, and I was just noticing, it's, if you've been to synagogue, it's very comfortable, particularly if you go to a kind of a, a conservative, orthodox synagogue's a little more ritual and a lot more Hebrew. You go to a Reformed uh, uh, service, and it's basically, it feels like kind of an evangelical church. You don't feel out of place at all. It doesn't feel that foreign. So synagogues developed after Israel, after captivity in Babylon, um, and so uh, even when the temple was rebuilt, synagogues continued. Uh, in fact, there was on the temple compound, there were synagogues. So, you know, it's two different kinds of approaches to things. So what about the Pentecostals? Now we, we've lost the Pentecostals, you know. So I had, oh, but that's, that's the prophetic tradition. That's you know, you're out in the wilderness. You're John the Baptist. You don't, you don't, you don't need even a synagogue. You don't. You certainly don't need the temple. You need you bunch of vipers. You need to repent. You know who who warned you the wrath of God to come? And it's like there's thunder and lightning and be baptized or you shall ever perish. And so, you know, they're like, oh, what do we do? Well, you better get in the water. So. Uh, so John the Baptist, it was misnamed. It was John the Pentecostal, uh, you know, but he did baptize. So you can see this in the different, uh, the, 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 the leaders of these different communities. You know, we, we actually call a, a leader of a liturgical church a priest. And it doesn't mean the same thing as an Old Testament priest because for, particularly for Protestants, a priest is not in between the people and God. Uh, because all God's people are priests, but uh, a New Testament priest or a Christian priest is, uh, it's shortened uh, in English, uh, there's, uh, it's the same word for Old Testament and New Testament priest, and that's why the confusion. In French, there's two different words, and so uh, it, the Old Testament priest is called a sacrificateur, which is a, a, one who sacrifices, and, but, but, but a, a prêtre or a curé is, you know, that a, 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 a Priest is a shortened uh, form of the word presbyter, uh, which means elder, presbyteros. So, so you've you got a priest in liturgical churches. You have a rabbi, basically. You know, a good evangelical pastor is a rabbi. He, you know, opens up the scripture and explains to people. But a Pentecostal leader is a prophet. Even, uh, even if he doesn't think he's prophesying, it's basically the, the, the basic message of a Pentecostal uh, a sermon is, you know, get off your rear and do something. Oh my God, you know, time's wasting here. Let's, you know, so, uh, uh, I mean, there's priestly, I grew up, there's priestly people in Pentecostal churches. There's prophetic people in liturgical churches. There's teachers and all this, but in general, is it, you know, overgeneralization. What's the aim of liturgical worship when it's done well? 
if it's not just putting you to sleep and boring the heck out of you, what is, what is the aim of liturgical worship? Awe. Reverence. So if there's, there's a hymn that would sum up liturgical worship as, let all uh, mortal flesh keep silent and with fear and trembling come. Let all mortal flesh keep silent and with fear and trembling stand. You know, so it's an idea of soul shaking. Even the architecture is designed to move the eyes upward and to feel in the immensity of God. And, and, and that, and that uh, it's, it's the creator. It's, you know, you're, you're worshiping uh, a being far beyond anything you can imagine. And, and liturgical worship is meant to bring you to that place to where uh, you are in awe and reverence uh, in the presence of, of, of a mighty God. Uh, evangelical worship is all geared to bringing you understanding of God's revelation so that you can order your life correctly by how God wishes you to live. And the great hymn that summarizes evangelicalism is, he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, no one has ever known. Uh, he speaks in the sound of his voice. It's so sweet that the birds hush their singing and the melody that he gave to me. So it's, it's, that, it's that kind of warm embrace uh, of, of the intimacy uh, uh, of the risen Christ. And and um, uh, and understanding what the written word would tells us is is our lives ought to be ordered. the The aim of a Pentecostal worship service is to bring you into into an experience, the immediate felt presence of God, and an encounter with the power of God. So not not only is Jesus compassionately concerned about us. But the Spirit's power is here to bring healing. So we're glad if our doctor, if, you know, if our doctor uh, gets moved by our condition, we're, uh, we're touched that he cares. He's not just being professional or she's, that, 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 that they're professionally concerned. But you wouldn't want your doctor just to suddenly break down and weep and just say, you know, you've got this disease. You know, you want your doctor to have some capacity to bring you some help. So Jesus is not only has compassion for us, but the Pentecostals is like in. He is here right now. He is right beside you. He is in this place where you are, and you're like, whoa. It's like there's a sense of the immediacy of God being present to, to act. So that prophetic thing again. So, so the way that, that liturgical worship is processed. Yes, sir. Oh, I'll give you a song. Here's the song. The song is, uh, Something got a hold of me. Oh, yes, it did. Something got a hold of me. Well, I went to the meeting one night, and my soul wasn't right, but something got a hold of me. It has 900 verses, but the first line of the next one is, Does the Holy Ghost got a hold of me? And they sing that 900 times, and you're, I mean, you'll probably levitate. Okay, so you got your song. 
so the sacraments in liturgical worship are a way of ordering the whole family of God to walk together. Common prayer means prayers we can pray together. And we have some of those that all Christians pray, like the Lord's Prayer. If I start saying, let's pray, and you're like, okay, he's going to pray. And I say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallelujah. Oh, okay, we're all going to pray this. And pretty soon, just everybody will be praying the words of the Lord's Prayer. It's a common prayer, meaning we pray it in common. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's uh, like Psalms that we can, we can do that. In evangelical churches, most Protestant churches, common prayers are most often sung. And so a lot of the uh, praise courses we sing are actually common prayers set to music. Uh, For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted high above all gods. We exalt thee, we exalt thee, O Lord. So people are praying together, it's just with music. And in fact, in, the, in most of church history, it was rare to speak a prayer. They were all sung. The whole service was sung. Even the scripture, being, well, when it's being read, was being sung. It's what we call a chant. And there was a way that they did that, that people would know and be able to follow along. So um, the sacraments. So it's the people moving together, speaking together, doing things together. And of course, the only icon in an evangelical church is the Bible. And, and uh, so it's that one sacred object where it gets all the attention, uh, even ceremonially. And, and you think about just a few years ago before they were on phones, people carrying their Bibles under their arm. Some really holy people had great big Bibles. Uh, less people that were ashamed of Jesus had tiny Bibles that they hid until they went to church. Uh, but it's the Bible's the center of it all. And, and it's the text just like in a, in a synagogue. And in, in, the, in the Pentecostal church, again, it's, it's the experience, the felt experience of the presence of God. It unites the people. And if you'll look at this, uh, sacramental churches and Pentecostal churches have an awful lot in common in that they're embodied. You can go to the evangelical church a lot of times and you don't have to move, you don't have to sing, you don't have to do much anything. You can just watch the people in the front do whatever they do in a way. But in a liturgical church, you've got to get up and you've got to walk around and you've got to walk across the aisle and then you've got to stand up and then sit down and you kneel and you've got to know the steps of the dance. Uh, Pentecostal church is very different than that because everybody's kind of making their own dance up the... They, <laughs> And so you don't know as you walk in and everybody's doing a little, somebody's doing this and somebody's on their knees and somebody else is shaking and somebody else just kind of, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's individualized, but it's still embodied. It's, it's, it's not, because at its worst, and all of these have their worst uh, features, evangelical church can be uh, very abstract and isolating in the sense that it's just here. It's the intellect and you're observing. But Pentecostalism kind of forces you to embody in some way. You've got to clap your hands. You've got to raise your hands. You've got to do something. And, in, and in, uh, that's true in sacramental churches too, but um, it's prescribed. So the difference between these is Pentecostalism uh, privileges spontaneity uh, and liturgical churches uh, privilege uh, uh, planning and order. So th- 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 
this was this last line that really got to me, probably created my way of thinking about Three Streams Christianity. And I asked myself, why do these different communities exist? Well, one thing is they grew up in different countries and different languages and different eras of time. I get all that. But what, create, what pushes them in these certain kind of styles of worship? And the answer is, it's the person of the Godhead to whom prayers and attention is most given. So by and large, you go to an Orthodox church, particularly in, 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 uh, in the old world, you often see, you know, the Lord enthroned on a, you know, high above you, looking down on a dome, from the dome. There's a sense of the, the fatherhood of God, the creator. Even when you listen to the prayers in liturgical church, uh, it's, uh, uh, you, may, you mention Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but it's always, and to, to whom uh, with the Father is glorified, and the Father is always there. So it's the center, center piece is the Father from whom uh, the Son and Holy Spirit proceeds and so forth. And uh, in the evangelical church, of course, it's the Son. And in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, it's the Holy Spirit. Let me stop here for a moment because it's like drinking from a water hose. So um, everybody kind of get this. Anybody? It's like, yeah, I don't get it. So can you, can you see the church where you started your walk with God? Have can anybody say, I started out in one of these places and then I ended up somewhere else? Okay. Uh, anybody can say, I've kind of been part of three, all three. A couple, three, four. Okay. So, uh, so you kind of get this. And, and what I th- have found this is anybody I show this to that's a Christian, I don't care what kind of Christian they are, when I show them this, like, yeah, I'm here. Uh, so, uh, it, it's, it helps us not to be alienated from one another, even if something is not our preference. It helps us to say, uh, okay, I know why now they do such and such. It doesn't mean you have to do it when you come to that realization. Because sometimes some of the customs that have grown up in Christianity grew up in specific times and places and they may not be at all comfortable to you or you may not think that they're helpful to you. But the question to ask about them is, why did they grow up? What are they a response to? What are they communicating? And if, and if you get any answer from those questions, you can say, how are we doing that in our church? Like for a contemporary church, for example. If you have a contemporary church and, you know, you've got the lights and you've got everything and, and, it's, uh, and, and you've got contemporary music and all those things... You might want to say, is there any place that you can say there's awe and reverence anywhere in the service? Is there, or at any time, is there an appropriate, a time when people can say their hearts or spirits are kind of arrested by the presence of God and they have awe of God? Uh, and conversely, you can say, you know, to a Catholic person after you're, in conversation and, and, and no one's feeling defensive, is there any place you can say a celebratory where, uh, where the spontaneity of the spirit or the intimacy of Jesus as, as not only sacrificed for you a long time ago, but uh, he walks with you and talks with you and tells you his own. Is there any place? You, I, I uh, uh, came across a copy of um, 
uh, in packing the other day, a book I hadn't read for a long time that was uh, journals of uh, Father Alexander Schmem and a Russian Orthodox Church, which is a wonderful man. And he talked about going to a funeral of a friend who had not been Orthodox and and he had never been in a non-Orthodox Christian church before. And, it, and I think it was a Baptist church. And, and he went there and he said, I heard the most beautiful song, the most haunting song. He said, if, if, if the whole world would hear this song, they would... Uh, they they would love Jesus and 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 they they would know and it was and the song was just as I am without one plea, and he said it's just the most haunting thing. He said I wrote down as much as if I could I could get, and he said I just he said I, it brought tears to my eyes. He said I had to say that Christ was really there in that place. Well, here's somebody coming from a very very different kind of church. And yet they recognize, oh, it's, this is the Lord. And when we let our guard down, we do, we do experience that in the various uh, places that even it's very different than what we're used to. So, okay, so in talking about, um, I want to talk about uh, the church here a little bit. Um, I, I was thinking today how to talk about this, and here's where I want to begin. When Jesus disciples walking through a field and they they started you know grinding up some uh wheat and eating it uh all the folks around them said well fine that's just great right no because they, they weren't said hey that's not that's not your wheat was that with their problem no their their problem was what yeah he was he was he was eating they were they were doing this on the sabbath and it wasn't and and does anybody remember the lord's response He was Lord of the Sabbath, and he said specifically about why the Sabbath was instituted, and did he say? You remember? Yes, he does. David eating the bread, and he said something about human beings were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for human beings. What's the principle there? Yeah, if it's legalism... It destroys the purpose for which the Sabbath was created because the Sabbath is made to rest and you've got 970 million laws regarding the Sabbath. And when it comes, you're exhausted instead of being recreated because you can't, you, you can't keep all the laws unless I can think I broke the Sabbath today. And now you're just like a mess and you're, you're waiting for Monday to come so you can be free of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, God gave you the Sabbath so you wouldn't work yourself to death. And so you could think about God and family and life. And even the slave, the slave and the king alike, you can't work that day. It's, the Sabbath was, so, so was Jesus saying the Sabbath was a bad thing or a good thing? Because a good thing, what was bad about it? Pardon me? They turned it into something that wasn't they had to do it. Same with the dietary laws. I mean, I know, I know we, we almost, uh, uh, we we almost venerate the pig in in the South. But uh, <laughs> when you don't have refrigeration, pig isn't good for you. I mean, it's not that good for you anyway, right? I know you can you can fry it, you can boil it, you can bake it, you can. I mean, you can do all, you can eat every part of it. Uh, all that's true, but uh, you know, 
I have a memory in my this this um, Irish Pentecostal preacher from Belfast didn't believe we should eat pork, and so he had come into Chicago and we were meeting with him and and. and we come out to breakfast and there was everything. I mean, there was ham, there was bacon, there was sausage. It was like every kind, everything the pig could do was on that table. Uh, and, and so, so they, they asked, um, the, brother Heron was the name. Would you, would you say the blessings? And, 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 uh, and then somebody's like, Oh gosh, you don't eat pork. What are we, what are we, and he says, well, I can pray. He said, Lord, if you can bless that which thou hast cursed, then please, for our sake, would you bless this food? Uh, so, you know, everybody was laughing. They said, truly, do you think you can go, do you think we'll go to heaven eating pork? He said, oh, yeah, you'll get there sooner than myself. He said. <laughs> okay, so that gives you kind of a picture. So in that spirit, we read that uh, the apostle Paul uh, writes to the Galatians and said, you know, You've been free, and then you've and you got to keep all these these dates and times and seasons you get. So once again, what was he talking about? It was like uh, they had to make sure they're getting the stuff from Jerusalem to know when the when the Passover was supposed to be, and they had to keep it this way. And then it was, and all the feast days and fast days, and they had to keep the calendar. and And liturgical Christianity can do that to you too. There is a legalism in some parts of this walk to where, you know, it's, uh, it, it does, it does to the church year what, what, uh, the Jews at the time of Christ had done to the Sabbath. And, uh, and that's what happened in the Reformation. They're like, you know what? We're dying from all these fast days and peace days. We got to just quit this stuff. And it's like, uh, come to church, you know, Sunday's a good day. Everybody's off work. Come on Sunday, but, you know, don't worry about it. And so the Puritans didn't even celebrate Christmas. Little by little, things have creeped back in, uh, thankfully. Um, but, but what, 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 uh, lit, what liturgical time can do is that we, sometimes we think, you know, the days of the week and, and, and the months of the year and all, this, this is real time, but, the fact is, it's, it's made up by human beings. Uh, we're measuring time, and we're doing it in a secular way, and it has, no, it, it has no purpose whatsoever of bringing us into the presence of God or even making room for that. And so how do we restore that? Well, in, in the liturgical year, which begins in uh, Advent, uh, which is usually the first Sunday, not always, but usually the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, which is a secular holiday. Um, then Advent means coming. And so uh, we're anticipating the coming of Jesus. Not only We're focused not only on the, on the uh, first coming of Christ, but the second coming. And so we're talking about the coming of the Lord and what it means to live in expectation of the coming of the Lord. And we read scriptures from, uh, uh, from prophecies about the coming of Jesus and, then, uh, and also about prophecies about the second coming of Jesus and, and that kind of time telescopes as a way. And we're in between these two things and we talk about that. And then, of course, there's Christmas Eve and Christmas. And, and, and that... The Christmas season takes us to Epiphany, which is uh, January the 6th, when the wise men bring 
gifts to the Christ child. And that's where we get the 12 days of Christmas. And uh, your true love can bring to you all those things for 12 days, um, if you like. If you can get the Lord's a leaping, but the Lord's won't leap usually. But, um, so that's where that idea comes. Between Christmas and, and Epiphany uh, are the 12 days of Christmas. And Epiphany ends the Christmas season. And then what's Epiphany is about, it's a rejoicing that the, that the covenant has been opened up to non-Jews. And so now we're looking into uh, missions. It's about the worldwide global reach of the Christian faith. So in that, the Ethiopian eunuch, there's Pentecost, there's, uh, there's the flowering of the faith out into to, to every tribe, kindred, and tongue. Here's the gospel of Jesus. And uh, so we've been in Epiphany. We're about ready to go into Lent in two weeks. And Lent begins on a day called Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is so named because ashes are made available for people to put on their heads. And so you'll see, particularly not so much in the South, but sometimes you'll see sometimes these rascals at congressional hearings, and they've got, you know, Ash Wednesday, they've got a mark on their head, and like somebody didn't wash their head. I, I actually heard a reporter say that, like, well, he's got some kind of junk on his head, and they're like, it's Ash Wednesday. What? What? What is? What kind of? Um, so the ashes, uh, Old and New Testament, is a sign of repentance. What's really funny to me about Ash Wednesday? There's a scripture that's read at Ash Wednesday, and we read it every Ash Wednesday, and always it always brings me, it always makes me laugh, because it's so, so uh, the passage is, is it Micah? It's like, is this the kind of fast that I've called that you to put ashes on your head and, and you know, and to afflict yourself and go, I don't care about this stuff. And like, okay, we're doing it, but, uh, and we're reading this scripture about, about and, uh, but it, it's good. Because if you think about it, if you're married, and you were in any kind of traditional wedding ceremony that's Christian at any level and wasn't, you went up in a hot air balloon and, and, and you know, uh, and the preacher was a clown from, you know, which people, uh, but a Christian wedding uh, has, has things in it called vows um, and so forth. And, and, and the pastor, minister, priest, whatever says to you, at some point he puts a ring you put a ring on a finger, and of course the old ceremony says, with this ring I thee wed. Right? In the old days they used to say, and all my earthly goods to thee I bestow. But now that is part of the prenup, so uh, it's not. Uh, we don't say that anymore. Uh, I miss the old marriage ceremony. You know what I miss about the old marriage ceremony? Know you both that in the great and terrible day of the Lord, when the secrets of men's hearts will lay bare, that if either of you know in any reason, moral or legal, that you should not be married lawfully, you shall now confess it, because know you for of a surety that the wrath of God will be revealed to all men and so forth. And uh, You know, uh, I, uh, I miss it. Uh, it's, it, was, it was a great line. And then to bring them to fear and trembling there, it's like there might be some reason, legal or moral. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, but I, I, I got off. With, with, with this ring I thee wed. Well, what's true about that? How, is it true? Can you be married without a ring? 
Yes, you can be married without a wing. Just as married as if you had. Also, and this I always say this to youth groups. Okay, so you're in the front seat of the car with the guy, and he says, "I got, I got a ring, and I, I I'm gonna put it." And you know, God, it, it, the church doesn't matter. And so I said, "Forget that. Jump out of the car." And a uh, guy's up to no good. So the ring, the ring also doesn't make you wed. So if you're, you're given a ring, does that make you wed? No, it doesn't. So you can be married without the ring, or you can have a ring and not be married. Is that true? So does the phrase mean anything with this ring I thee wed? It does. It's hard to describe, though, isn't it? It's hard to describe. But yes, it does mean something. I remember, uh, I've, I've worn this now for 45 years, and... Uh, uh, you know, the day it was put on my f- finger by my wife in the presence of God and witnesses, uh, I took vows I didn't... I mean, the vows aren't for right then, right? Uh, because you don't need them right then. You don't need to say, and uh, forsaking all others, cling only to her as long as you both shall live. You don't need them that day. If you do, you're in trouble. You don't need to be married. <laughs> No, it's like, oh, I'll never, why would I say such thing? I don't even need to say it. It's like we're in love. But there'll come a time, you know, when you'll need that. And it it, it came for me the first time as like, I like to flirt. I mean, I I really like to flirt, you know, because when I looked in the mirror, I saw something that all women had always been waiting for since the day they were, I I, I couldn't help myself. It just just popped right out out of the mirror, you know. It was years before I realized I was the only one seeing that, you know. Uh, uh, But, uh, which is another thing, you know, therapy's a hard but important thing. Uh, But, um, uh, but, but, I was, I actually had stopped for breakfast somewhere traveling and, and I, and I had a cup of coffee and the waitress was being, uh, really nice. And so I'm thinking, uh, there it is. That's my clue. Right. So I'm flirting. I'm just flirting. And then I looked down and, and it seemed like this was like 900 pounds. It just like, it was staring at me. It was yelling at me. And suddenly I felt like in trouble with God. I crossed a line that's not mine to cross anymore. What did I just say just a few months ago? And sickness and health for rich or poor, forsaking all others. I mean, nowadays people might think it wasn't a serious line to cross, but I'm a believer and I've taken vows in the presence of God and with this ring I thee wed. And, oh, that's a purpose of a sacrament. It's to remind you. I took vows. I can't do this anymore. Done. And I said, I'm done, Lord. I'm done. You help me and I'm done. I won't do that anymore. I'm done. And because uh, you, don't, you don't play around with things that you've promised God you're not going to do. I mean, sometimes we fail at those things. We repent, and the Lord forgives us, but we do our best not to go to those places. And, and we need reminders, and that's what the ring is for. Forty-five years, there it is. And, uh, and I'm still wearing, wearing the ring. And is there any, so, so when the Ash Wednesday comes, and 
And uh, I, and by the way, if you have if you have Ash Wednesday service and you have ashes here, you don't you don't have to stay away just because I'm not putting ashes on my head. If it's you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. Just don't do it. It's not helpful for you. Uh, the man was not made for Sabbath. Sabbath's made for man. Don't do it. Just but it can still be uh, helpful to you to have the reminder up here because all through the Bible you would say about. Uh, the Lord said, you know, if Sodom and Gomorrah could have seen this day, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And there's ashes right there. And and so when we go forward and we hear the minister, the priest, the deacon, whoever, uh, put that ashes on our head and say, there's several things can be said. Remember, O man, from dust thou art and dust thou shalt return. Or repent and believe the gospel. It's It's kind of sobering to go out into the world then and, and uh, people will notice. One thing you'll notice is sometimes you'll see people like Catherine's, uh, Catholics, Lutherans or whatever, and they'll see you and they'll kind of wave. And it's like for the first time in your life, you're like, I never saw you before. Uh, so, you're in, so you see that, particularly in the South. But also people sometimes say, well, you've got that on your head. Yes, it's Ash Wednesday. What is Ash Wednesday? Well, it's a day that Christians give to repentance. Now you'll hear from some Christians, and you may have this, and it's perfectly true. You can repent at any time. You don't need a special time of the year to repent. Well, fine. What time of the year do you repent? Right. So the fact is, many times, if if we don't set aside a time, and in in the old days we'd set aside the revival times, and you know we we kind of reproduced it in some ways, but this is a time when all the church all over the world throughout. Uh, many, many centuries, and in, in Jewish times, it was Yom Kippur, right? This time of like, I'm going to do serious business with God. So during Lent, you know, you can do something like my daughter did when she was little. She gave up asparagus for Lent. She wasn't, but she told us I won't be able to eat asparagus all during, uh, or broccoli it was. She said, all during Lent, I can't eat broccoli because I promised the Lord I'd give that up for Lent. So. You know, when you're seven, you don't get to do that. Uh, so there's all kind of trivial things, you know, you know, people will do and they think. Uh, and sometimes it's giving things up. Sometimes it's adding things in. I'm going for Lent. I'm, it's, you give yourself uh, something to do you think God lays on your heart. Like, I'm going to write a thank you note to someone that has blessed me in my life each day during Lent. So the deal is you're preparing for Easter. All Christians just about celebrate Easter, but we celebrate Easter without a cross many times, or we try to put the cross in Easter because we don't know it. So you come, you go to an Easter service, instead about the glory of the resurrection, it's about Jesus dying on the cross. Well, Jesus is, is so there's no way to deal with, uh, you know, uh, the resurrection as the resurrection, which is joyful and, and shouldn't have any gloom or despair whatsoever in the Easter service. So when you have, you, have, you have Lent, there's this idea of you're, you're walking with Christ to Calvary and asking the Lord to put to death things in your life need to be put to death and bring to life things in your life should be put to life. And this is a very individual journey. And uh, then in the last week of Lent, which is Holy Week, then uh, there's, there's different things throughout the week you can do individual in your home. So there's things that, that are done in the church as well. Uh, 
Monday, Thursdays, Thursday. Monday means commandment because the Lord says, this is a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, some people call it Holy Thursday. Uh, but that's when the Lord instituted communion service. So it's the first communion service. It's an adaptation of the Passover. Some Christians do a Seder that night. And they talk about the meaning of the Seder. It's perfectly legitimate and fine. Uh, these, again, these are not things that you find in the Scripture that Lord says, do this, you know, always do this. Um, but uh, they are reminders that we can bring, bring to ourselves. What, what churches tend to do is to capitalize on some themes and, and to minimize other themes. So, you know, you go to Pentecostal church, it's Pentecost every Sunday. And, you know, go, go to Church of Christ, and it's not Pentecost any Sunday, you know. Uh, but it's, it's, you're going to get into the Word of God every Sunday, uh, you know, you, and so forth. And you can see how we kind of, uh, yeah, that's in the Bible, but you know, we, we, we do this here. Uh, you know, and so um, what, what, what going through the church here like this does is begin to make you face up to all parts of the Bible, parts that you weren't really that comfortable with. So we get to Easter and we celebrate and, and it's, you know, Christ is risen in a way all, 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 all Sundays are Easter. And then, and then of course, from there we go into Pentecost and, uh, uh, and Pentecost of course is about the Holy Spirit from Pentecost then to Advent is almost half the year and that's called ordinary time. And it, and the idea there is these, this other part of the year is punctuated by all these high, holy, kind of powerful things that you're remembering. And in ordinary time, it's about everyday life and embodying what we've learned into everyday life. Because it's like in the season in the northern hemisphere, we're waiting. Things that have been, uh, the seed is put, put in the ground, we're waiting for it to grow. I need to quit talking. So I hope I've given you some kind of an overview of... Uh, of what all this is about and why. And once again, to, to remind you, you don't have to do any of it. You can do parts of it that are a blessing to you. Sometimes you can observe other people doing it and, and you see what it means to them. And even though you don't want to participate, it, it helps you to understand things about your faith. It's always okay to ask questions about it. It's always okay to ask whether we're replacing living a, a connection with God with, with uh, just ritual? Those are always uh, the right questions to ask. They're never wrong questions to ask. Uh, and as long as we can ask them, it doesn't feel dangerous or contrived or forced. And, uh, and we also, we walk through these things as a community in ways that does not bring offense or needless uh, uh, division with folks. Let me open it up for questions.